Well, if I was to uh, start off with this statement, I think I'd get uh, pretty good universal in, uh, buy-in. Who wants to change the world? I think most people, most people, again, some of you are nuancing that even now in your mind, most people are for that. Most people are for, hey, let's make a difference. Let's bring change to our world, or let's try to bring change to our culture or our country. I think most people are in general agreement with that. As you're thinking about that, maybe for a moment, let me introduce myself. My name's Jeff Bennett. Just have the privilege of being the lead pastor here at Harbor, and welcome to all of you, and then welcome also to Harbor Online. And so glad that you're joining us, whether live now or later, but just a warm welcome to you this morning. Of course, when we say, let's change the world, again, there's a lot of things wrong with our world. There's a lot of different categories, a lot of different ways we could see that happen. For some of you, maybe you, your mind went to a cause right away. Okay, this is how I want to change the world. Maybe some of you thought of the environment. You know, how could we have less pollution in our world? Maybe others of you went to poverty. How could we have less poverty in our world? And certainly, hearing a, hearing a story of a child who goes to bed hungry at night, we would say we would want to change that. Maybe for some of you, and this has certainly been relevant in Canada over the last months, you would say, I wish there was less racism. And we look around our country and we see some examples of that. And we're reminded of Martin Luther King's vision. You know that we would be judged, people would be judged on the content of the, on their character, not on the color of their skin. For others of you, you might say, I wish that in our land or in our world there was a higher regard for the sanctity of life from the moment of conception to the very end of natural death. And I just wish we held life to be more precious and a gift from God. For others of you, it would be your view of sexuality and that God's view would be honored around our world and in our nation and that we know that God as creator has designed us and created it in such a way and you would just long that that vision would be lived out so people would find the life that our creator offers. And even over the last 15 months, some of you have said in your hearts, I wish there was more religious freedom or more civil liberties or whatever that category is. That's a whole other category, and we long that there might, some of you long that there might be more change in that regard. So there's many ways we could choose to change the world. And the list goes on. I've just named six there, and we may disagree on some of the fundamental premises, or certainly people would in general, and we may disagree about how we get there, but the fact that we want to make a difference, that we want to change our world or change our culture is in all of our hearts. The question we come to this morning is how does that actually happen? How do we actually see the culture change? How might we see our world be a different place? If you've been tracking with this series, we're in a series called Only God. And we've been looking at a man named Paul and his missionary journeys. Early on, we looked at the cities he went to and we just saw his strategy. Very simple strategy, and if you followed the series, you know what he does in every city. Now, as we've moved further on in the series, it's still the same strategy, but I can't do the same message every week, so we've been looking at what's unique in these cities, what's unique about each one, and then each one, there's different uniquenesses, but today, we come to the city of Ephesus, and one thing that's really unique in Ephesus is that we see real cultural change. 
Actually, when we see it, it's actually unbelievable what happens in the city of Ephesus. We see that the city and the province is a different place. And so we get to look in and say, how did that happen? And so maybe for some of you today who don't really have any hope that our world, that our culture could ever change, we're going to look in on this story and you can regain some hope in the way God can work in our midst. For others of you, as you maybe have named an issue in your mind, a cause, an area where you would like to see change, we get a little perspective here. We get a little roadmap on how these kind of things happen. And for all of us who long to make a difference, who long to you know, have a, have a greater purpose in life, and maybe some of you would even be here today and say, you know, I've been successful in everything, but I feel empty. You know, I've done all of this, but I don't really know if I have purpose. And so today we get to look in and deal with that. How do we live on purpose? How do we make a difference? And then as we've gone through all of this, then we come to the end. This will be the best part. We get to celebrate communion together. And we haven't gotten to do that in a little while. And so this is so nice that we can be together as the family of God and mark what Christ has done for us on the cross. So that's our journey today. It's Acts chapter 19. Sure, hope you have your Bibles. Open them up, turn them on. If you're online, follow along with us. The city of Ephesus gets the whole chapter, Acts 19. So I've got to move fairly quickly here to get through. I'm going to skip some verses and skip some spots, not because they're not important, but only because we have a second service coming, and we want them to be able to get in here at 11 o'clock. You can read the whole chapter at home alone. So uh, Acts 19, we'll start in verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road to the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples of John the Baptist. Verse 5, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. There were about 12 men in all. So a quick little recap here. Paul goes back to Antioch after Corinth. It's his second missionary journey. He finishes up, he goes back to the home church, he reports, and then he heads back out now on his third journey. He goes on the interior, back through the other cities. You remember we talked about them? Lystra, Derby, Pisidian, Antioch. He goes back and checks on them, sees how they're doing, and then he comes down to Ephesus. And while he is in Ephesus, when he arrives there, Priscilla and Aquila, they're already there. Apollos has been there doing some ministry. But Paul arrives to plant a church in this very secular city as we will see. And he arrives there, and this is what I love that God does. You know, we talk about the harvest being plentiful. This is such a great moment. Paul arrives, and he meets 12 guys who are in a little small group studying together, and he meets them, and they say, oh, we're followers of John the Baptist. And Paul's like, well, this is wonderful. Have you heard of Jesus? And they're like, no, we haven't heard of Jesus. Paul's like, this is really an important part of the story. I'm summarizing very quickly here. But he says, you know, he says, no. He says, John the Baptist was pointing to Jesus. And they say, oh, we never knew that about John the Baptist. Paul's like, yeah, it's really important. So he tells them about Jesus. They believe in Jesus, and they are baptized. What a great way to start a church. Just arrive. you got a group of 12 guys all ready to go. That's what God does, only God, as Paul enters Ephesus. Now, go down to verse 8. You see the strategy continuing. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate, they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Again, if you've been a part of this series, you know this routine. Paul speaks the word of the Lord. 
He's committed to sharing the gospel message. What happens? Some people believe, and then some become obstinate. They malign him, and so what does Paul do? In every city, he moves to another location where he can minister to those who are interested. In this case, he ends up in the hall of Tyrannus. Probably there was a lecturer there who lectured in the morning, and there was afternoon space available. Maybe, I think he, some scholars think he had the nickname the tyrant. So this is the hall of the tyrant. That's where he is in the morning. Then Paul says, hey, you got some space for us? We'll, we'll have church here in the afternoon. And they meet there every day at the hall of Tyrannus. Down to verse 10. This is my favorite verse. You're going to want to underline it. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So Paul now, if you've been following this journey, he gets two years of uninterrupted teaching in the hall of Tyrannus. He has not yet had this in, his, in anywhere else in the journey, maybe a little bit in Corinth, but he's always been run out of a city too quickly. But now he gets two years every day to teach the disciples at the hall of Tyrannus. And what happens? This is incredible. The word of the Lord spreads so that the whole province of Asia has heard the gospel. So in two years, Paul is in the hall of Tyrannus, and we might think, oh, Paul, he was just, you know, teaching through the book of Romans. And I'm sure he was teaching some great theology, but he never left the city. How did everyone in the whole province of Asia hear the gospel? Because Paul is there training them. He's training them to go out and share the gospel and start, make disciples and start churches. He's passing on his strategy to everyone in the hall of Tyrannus. And they are living it out and going out and they're seeing churches start. I'll just show it to you in a moment on the map. You'll see the blue, which was Paul's first missionary journey. You'll see the red, which was the second journey. And then right in the middle where the purple star is, you'll see the yellow portion. And we can bring up the map now. And you can see there, right in the middle, Asia or Asia Minor, purple star, is where Ephesus is. And now the previous two journeys, Paul surrounded this area. But now the gospel spreads through this entire area. It's really hard to get population counts, but we think Ephesus was a city of 200,000 people. And if that city was 10% of the whole province, maybe the province is 2 million people. So under three years, what Luke is recording is that about 3 million people have heard the gospel. We know of at least 13 churches that get planted during this time. Uh, we know three from the book of Colossians, the churches in Revelation, the seven churches are mentioned there. We get two more in the book of Acts, and church history gives us two. So at least 13 churches in these two years are being planted as Paul is training them, and the mission is being spread out. By far, this is the most successful time in Paul's ministry where the gospel spreads so rapidly. So after two years, look down to verse 13. Here's what happens next. This is a crazy story. I hardly have time to comment on it, and I'm sort of glad for that. I'm just going to read the story and let it speak for itself. So some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. The seven sons of Shiva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil sp spirits answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. 
Then, when, the, when this became known in the, to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And many, of, many, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachma. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So you have sort of this very interesting story, but it's an incident that shows the superiority of Christ. And as the superiority of Christ is proclaimed in this region, people have a response. They suddenly realize the uselessness and the sinfulness of what they were involved in, and they confess their sinfulness, and then they say, you know, we've got this, you know, we're, we're, we're not operating as Christ followers should, and then they bring their scrolls that were sort of, you know, all this magic sorcery and everything, they bring those scrolls and they, be, and they burn them. And it says here, 50,000 drachma, today's dollars, that's about $6 million worth of a bonfire there, maybe in the hall of Tyrannus parking lot or something. But that's what they are doing. Now, it's interesting. Some of these would have been new believers, but some of them would have been brand new believers. They saw this incident, and it convicts them to turn to Christ. But the way this reads is there were some that were believers over the last two years who had trusted in Christ, but were still sort of engaged in these pagan ways of thinking. But now this incident happens, and they get serious about their lives. They get serious about following Jesus in a very costly way, and they burn their scrolls, and they say, no, we're all in for Jesus. Now, we haven't yet seen cultural change, but we are seeing significant individual change, significant discipleship. Here comes now right on the heels of that decision, and again, you see the financial decision in that, and the way that would roll out, here comes then the culture change. Down to verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who, had silver who made silver shrines of Artemis and brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. So now we learn a little bit about Ephesus and this goddess uh, Artemis. There's actually 33 shrines of her throughout the Roman Empire. She's very popular, but the main shrine is here in Ephesus. It, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. If you're familiar with the Pantheon, that this, this shrine to Artemis in Ephesus is four times the size of the Pantheon. And they would have a spring festival. And many people think this is when this is happening. There'd be a spring festival where all the tourists would come to the shrine to worship the goddess uh, Artemis. And then, this is what Demetrius is doing and all his friends are doing. You know this when you go on vacation. What do you do? You stop by the little curio shops, the little souvenir shops, and you buy, a, you know, you buy some trinkets and you bring them home and put them on yourselves. He's, he's a souvenir dealer. But, but he's just not selling cheap little souvenirs. He's selling these really nice silver household idols. So you came to the temple, but then you could buy this silver household shrine and you could take it home with you. And apparently, it's really good business. They do well, especially during this time of year, the spring festival. 
so then he stands up in front of the crowd, and you can see what he's thinking here. He says he called them all together, all the workers and all the people that had the souvenir booths, and in all related trades. Sorry, I just added the souvenir booths part there. Uh, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. He says that the gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Now, I love this testimony. Earlier, you know, you might think, Luke, you were just exaggerating. Everyone in Asia heard the gospel. Now a guy who's opposed to the gospel, he says the same thing. He's like, yeah, everyone has heard this message from this guy, Paul. It has spread out everywhere, and I even love, he's got a basic understanding of what the gospel is, right? He doesn't agree with it, but he says, do you see his last line? What's Paul teaching? He says that the gods made by human hands are no gods at all. This is how far it's spread. Even a guy that's opposed to it has totally understood at least the beginning of what Paul is teaching. There is one God. And we live our lives uh, under him. And, we, and, we, and we've broken relationship with him. And so he's hearing at least some of the gospel content. And so it affirms what Luke has already told us. Interesting to note here, just a quick side note, what's his issue with the gospel? It's too exclusive. It's too exclusive. Right? It's just one God not made by human hands. Why can't it be all the gods? And that's always the issue of Christianity. It's too exclusive. On to verse 27. He's so wise. He's so crafty, this guy. Look at what he says. There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. You know what he's doing here, right? He's like, I'm going to lose money, but if I just say that, it seems selfish. So I'm going to say we need to protect the great goddess Artemis. And we need to protect the reputation of our city. He plays it so cleverly and so well. But just note here the cultural change that is happening, that, that he's recognizing. He's realizing what he's stating in less than three years, the entire economics of his industry has been undermined by the spread of the gospel. That, that's what he's saying here. This guy, Paul, is leading everyone astray, and it threatens our, my income, and it threatens the whole worship of Artemis, and it threatens the whole standing of our city. That's what he is noting. That's his objection. Now, I know when, when, you, when I first started this morning, and I said, well, how do you want to change the culture? Here's what I pretty much am certain of. None of you said there's too much worship of the goddess Artemis in our culture. I wish we could change it that way and eliminate that. None of you, that came to mind. That's not your first issue. But if you had visited Ephesus 2,000 years ago, you would have looked around and said, boy, I wish there was less worship of the goddess Artemis. It may not have been number one on your list, but looking around and from what we're reading here, it would have been, you know, top three, top five. It's an enormous issue of the day. And now, in less than three years, only God, the whole economy of this industry, the whole worship of Artemis is, has been undermined. And we learn that from not Christian people saying it, but we learn it from those who are feeling the effects of it and don't like it and want to change it or want to stop that from happening. Only God. This is massive cultural change. Probably one of the best examples of Scripture 
of when we see real change happening. Down to verse 28, what happens next? When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Articaeus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the city. And, it, and as you read this, it, it's actually Luke, we believe Luke understates what happens in these moments. And you might think, well, that sounded pretty bad. But when Paul writes to the Corinthian church, he says in this moment, I, when I was in Ephesus, I fought wild beasts with my hands. Most scholars think it's in this moment where he figuratively fought wild beasts. And then last week I mentioned this as well in Romans, Paul says, Aquila and Priscilla risked their lives for me. We also think it is at this moment in Ephesus where all of that happens. So it, it, it's, a, it's a huge risk to Paul's life. And then what you see happen next, and I can't go into the whole story, you see a guy stand up and sort of the rule of law, the rule of order, and there's some good lessons and learnings there, sort of comes, comes over and comes to preside in the city of Ephesus. And then to verse or chapter, chapter 20, verse 1, here's how it ends. When the uproar had ended... Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He's going to go back to the churches he, and visit the ones he started in his second journey. But this crisis means that Paul leaves quickly and quietly and secretly from Ephesus and, as best we know, never reappears there again in the city publicly because his life was in danger. But he leaves in the next day or week uh, a different city than he arrived in some three years earlier. Massive cultural change happening in the city of Ephesus. So how did we get there? How did this happen? And let me now just walk you through the story and show you three things that I think happened that led to this massive cultural change. Here's the first one. Paul was committed to gospel proclamation. So if you just wanted my outline, the first that leads to cultural change is gospel proclamation. We love this about Paul. He's diligent. He's relentless. He's totally committed to Christ. He, he is just devoted to his Lord and to the truth. And he is just relentlessly proclaiming Christ. We've seen this in every city he's gone to. It's not Paul's charisma, you know, his charisma. It's not his marketing strategy. It's not his political activism. This is one man. And I don't want to take away anything from Paul here, but one thing we note here is just the impact and the influence that one person can have in a culture, that one person can have in the city. Uh, one person can have in a region. And we mark that, and we should commend Paul for that. But ultimately, it was his commitment to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. He lived for it. He was totally devoted to it. He was willing to die for it. And let me just pause here. As we think about cultural change, this point helps us understand what the real problem is what the underlying problem is. Why are there problems in our world? Why are there problems in our culture? It's because of us. It's because of our own sinfulness. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who was asked years ago to write an article, an editorial for the newspaper on why, is the, why are there problems in the world or something like that. He sent a two-word response into the editor. 
the, why, what's the problem with the world? I am. And his simple teaching in that, that is, that reminds us what the scriptures teach us. Ultimately, the problem in the world is the human heart, is our own sinfulness, is our own depravity. And any other change that seeks to work outward in doesn't result in the kind of change we need. We need to start from the inside out, and that's where Paul is focused. We need to help people be made new to confess their sin and be transformed. So the first thing we see, how does culture change? Gospel proclamation, just committed to that. But, but there's more here. Paul, by most counts, never left the city of Ephesus. So it wasn't like he went around and talked to two million people. He had a really good strategy here. And he lived it out. And this is part of the only God nature of what we see here is that everyone was involved in sharing the gospel, making disciples, and starting churches. Epaphras is one example. Paul probably trained him in the hall of Tyrannus. He gets trained. He grows in his faith. He goes back to the city of Colossae, and there he plants a church. And we know that, and we know that church because Paul then later on writes them a letter, the letter of Colossians. Paul probably never was in Colossae, but, but through this hall of Tyrannus ministry, he's equipped Epaphras, and off he goes to plant that. So here's the second point, gospel proclamation, and then it's gospel multiplication. The gospel was multiplied out so that everyone was involved in sharing it. This week at Harbor, uh, it is called, we have this week where we call it 24 hours in the harvest. We're going to go out eight times for three hours each and seek to multiply the gospel uh, in our region. If you'd like to be a part of that and just be a silent observer, there are still spots available. You can go to the website and sign up. And some of you know we have been doing this as a church for the last two years. This is just our one week intensive for 24 hours, eight times to engage in that. I can't wait. I'm excited to see what the Lord will do this next week. We've been doing this over the last two years, and I went back and looked at our stats and our stats say that about, over again, this is really hard to do stats because there was COVID and there's all sorts of things happening. We haven't quite done it two years. But anyway, give me a little grace. I, but the lowest possible number is that through these organized methods, we have shared the gospel with about 15 people every week in a formal way in our region. And I celebrate that. Praise God, 15 people every week. And then... Let's just say, and this is really hard to judge, those are the secondary shares, but let's just say we as a church, all of you represented here or online or in the second service, have done about the same, about two gospel shares a, a day with a friend or a neighbor, and all of us together, that equals then, we have shared the gospel with 30 people every week. Praise God for that. I think, again, some of you may argue, Jeff, I think it's higher individually or I think it's lower. There's no way to know. I'm just going with 30 people a week and praise God for that. That's really good, isn't it? We should celebrate that as a church and I pray that the gospel will continue to be multiplied in Niagara and pray for us this week. May it be multiplied through what we do. But yet here, let me tell you this, that even as I'm totally encouraged by that, there's 400,000 people in Niagara that are far from God. And so at the rate we're currently going at, if it just depended on us, my math tells me it will take 256 years at the rate of 30 people a week for everyone in Niagara to hear the gospel. 
who's far from God. And we continue to meet every, people every week who have never heard the good news of Jesus. So as you think about our pace, 256 years, it's just amazing to see what God did during this time in Ephesus and how the gospel was multiplied out. Church historians say us, or even Romans historians say, every single person was just out there gossiping the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, what happened in Ephesus, and I heard a podcast this week, and the podcaster said, no one in North America who's alive has ever seen this. Here's the comparison. In Ephesus, the church grew at a faster percentage than the population grew. And in North America, over the last hundred years, the church has not grown at that, at, at a, the population has grown at a faster pace than the church has. And so we say, God, may you enable us to multiply the gospel. The harvest is plentiful. So here's the way culture change happened. Gospel proclamation, totally committed to that. But then, gospel multiplication, everyone sharing the gospel. And so you may say, okay, this, I see this, I see this. If everyone was a Christian or there was 10 or 20% more Christians in our province or in our region or in our country, that would change everything. And the answer to that is yes and no. The answer is yes and no. Again, you knew I was going to say yes, but then here's the tension of this. Let me read this quote. Numbers do not always equate to influence. Even if 80% of the population of a country are Christian believers, they will have almost no cultural influence if the Christians do not live in culture centers and work in culture-forging fields such as academia, publishing, media, entertainment, and the arts. Do you see that? One is, and again, we sort of assumed when you say, yes, this is going to make a difference, because you assume that everyone's making a difference when they're living it out. But this is saying if Christians don't do that, then the culture actually doesn't change. The world doesn't actually change. So look at what the believers did in Ephesus. They did not lobby city authorities. They did not picket silversmith shops. They did not organize demonstrations against Artemis worship. They didn't try to be popular. They just preached and lived out the gospel. And their changed lives pushed out old ways. Remember the scrolls? They come. This is costly. This is $6 million being burned. And if they're paying a cost here, they're paying a cost in a whole lot of other ways. What these individual believers are doing is forsaking the idols of their land. They're forsaking image and reputation and money, and they are saying we are totally committed to Christ. Here's the third thing I, I would call this is costly discipleship. Gospel proclamation, gospel multiplication, but really, when the culture began to change is when the disciples said, you know, we're going to live this out. Costly discipleship. Let me just pause here for a moment, and I'll just give two quick principles. But before I do that, maybe some of you here today or some of you watching, as you've read this story or heard this story, you realize you're in the point of the story where, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? And it's impossible to have everything and still be empty. It's impossible. It's possible to be successful and have no purpose. And what we learn from this story is that there were individuals that said, Jesus is worth it. And there's only one God, and I will turn to him to have relationship with him. I will forsake everything else and follow Jesus. 
And if you've never done that today, whether watching or here in person, could I just encourage you, turn your life over to God through Jesus Christ. Confess your sinfulness, and in him find fullness, find purpose, find meaning. So that's the journey to cultural change. Gospel proclamation, gospel multiplication, costly discipleship. Let me give two principles here then that apply to us as we have now seen those things in the story. One is more for the church and one is more for us as individuals. The first that leads us to the church question is this. How did the church in this story, meaning Paul and the other believers, seek to influence the culture? Were they active or passive? Were they direct or indirect? And I think as we read this story as an example, we see that they were passive. They didn't seek to actively change the culture, but passively through other means they did. They didn't directly seek to affect worship of Artemis, but indirectly they had a huge impact. Just think for a moment, Jesus lived this. Jesus gets asked a question about taxes. You know, and when you're an occupied force and someone asks you about taxes, that's a good answer to throw to the crowd. And Jesus does everything he can in that moment to say, let's just be about God, all things God. In fact, Jesus taught this. He didn't even live it. He taught it. Remember Jesus' example of what the kingdom of God is like? He said the kingdom of God is like yeast. It starts really small and it works its way through. Or this kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's small, but it grows big. That's exactly what we see happening here in Ephesus. It's like yeast. It's like a mustard seed. It spreads its way through. And so what then is the first principle? What do we learn here about culture change? In order for the culture to change, the church must be focused. Gospel first, which then leads to culture change. All of life is affected by the gospel. And, and as we understand the gospel and live it out in every area of our lives, it brings influence. So what is Harbor's mandate? Gospel first. Our mission, walking with people from disenchantment to discipleship. And there's a lot of disenchantment in our world. And we seek to fulfill Christ's mission of making disciples. How do we do that? Look up. Worship of God. Live deep. Making disciples. Lead out evangelism mission. These are the things. These are the purposes that God has given us. These are the beliefs that govern our behavior. And as we long for cultural change, as we long to change our world, this is the way that leads to that. I know the temptation the temptation can say, you know, the yeast method doesn't work very well. Let's go top down, outside in. But at times, if that's taken to an extreme, you can become captive to an ideology, captive to a cause, instead of to the lordship of Jesus Christ. So first, we are a focused church, gospel first, which leads to cultural change. Here's the second thing it leads to. Engaged, yet realistic disciples. What do we see in this passage? We see engaged disciples. This is costly for them. And even as the church keeps the gospel first, we end our service, harbor. We are sent. So the church doesn't directly change culture, but it disciples and supports people who do. Many of you have the opportunity to be actively, directly influencing our culture. Think of William Wilberforce. No one would doubt his commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the church of Christ, to making disciples, but we also know that God powerfully used him in the 1800s to see slavery abolished 
from the British Empire. Now, that was deeply costly for him if you know his biography. Some of you have real passion for a cause. May God use you in small ways and in big ways to make our world a better place, to make it more like Christ. But for all of us, for all of us, we're all called to go out and live costly discipleship. And even as we see here in the scriptures, it cost them. And we know today that there will continue to be costs for us that want to live for Christ. Now, we need the wisdom of Daniel to know how to operate in all the different venues, and some of you pray for that wisdom as you go out into your workplace, but here's what we know. Compromise is not an option. We must live for Christ. We must forsake the idols of this world. We must be willing to give up our reputation, our standing, our money, our jobs, and you would say, would God really ask this of me? And the answer is yes. He is worth it. He is worthy. He died, and he calls us to costly discipleship. So we change the culture by engaged disciples. But then I also said it's realistic. Like you and me, I long that one day our world will be fixed. And let me say this, one day it will. One day it will. And let me tell you when that, you're going to know. You're going to hear a loud trumpet call and you're going to see Jesus descend from the clouds and he's going to come down and set himself up as king in our world and he's going to reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years. When that happens, under his leadership, this will all be fixed and he will ultimately destroy sin forever. I long for that day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until that day, here's what Jesus promised us. He promised us persecution and trouble and suffering. And we should not be surprised when it comes our way. In fact, the church throughout history has thrived in these times. So yes, we go out and want to use our influence to change our culture. We engage in costly ways. But yet we also know that tribulation is coming. In fact, great tribulation is coming. How do we change the culture? At a focused church and disciples who are willing to follow Jesus Christ at any cost costly discipleship. But that can't just be a decision of the will. That just can't be something we motivate ourselves for. The only way we live out costly discipleship is first to see the price that Christ paid for us. And we realize the price that he paid on the cross for us. We could never pay that back. He paid the ultimate price. And the way, we understand, the way we survive any persecution or suffering or trouble is by seeing the greatness of who Christ is and what he did for us on the cross. It's only through a love for him and a focus on him that we are able to live out a life of costly discipleship. And that's why it's so good we get to end today with communion. What was Paul's message? He said, I preach one thing, Christ and him crucified. We just want to look at the cross and see what Christ had done for us. If we love him more and see more that he did for us, that then enables us to live differently this week in the many and varied venues that need the touch of God in our lives. So that's where we're going to come to now. We're going to come to this communion time. And it's so good that we get to do this together. Together. We get to say Jesus is first. And it's not just Jesus. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. 
And we get to say, may it be central in my life and it may be always be central in our church. That's the beauty and the wonder of getting to come to communion. Because, you know, we can wander. We can get focused on so many other things. Ever met someone who's committed to something and they're so committed to it, you think, but yet you forgot to love people along the way. How does that happen? We've just forgotten Jesus. And so this is what's so good about these next moments. We just get to come back and focus on Christ and specifically remember what he did for us on the cross. So I'm going to invite the band to come and join me and lead us in a song. I'm going to just let everyone know that if you are a follower of Christ, then this time is for you. You are welcome to participate. If you're still on the journey to making Jesus king, then we know this next time does not represent your heart, and you're free just to leave the elements where they are. Also, if you're not in right relationship with another believer or you're not in a good standing with the Lord right now, then what the Bible says is get that fixed first before you would partake of this next ordinance. So what we're going to do is the band is going to lead us in a song. You can just remain seated. At some point during the song, you'll see some little self-serve communion cups. You can grab those underneath your chair, hand those out to each other, and then all come back up and lead us in the taking of the elements together.
What a great gift the Lord has given us in this communion time, just to pause, to hold these elements and remind ourselves of what he did on the cross for us. And just to say in our hearts again, Jesus, I just center on you. So let me just read these words from 1 Corinthians. And then after, we're just going to, as Nick would play in the background, just give a little time to meditate and then partake of these elements. But here's what Paul wrote. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's just take 30 seconds and remember Christ. Jesus, we come. We remember you. Let's take and eat and drink together. Let me pray for us. Jesus, in this world, you promised us persecution and suffering and trouble. God, we pray, Lord, you would just fill us with a vision of the cross, how you died for us out of your great love while we were yet sinners. So, God, I just thank you, Lord, that we can remember what you did today, Lord. And God, may you just move the cross, may you move Christ more central in all of our hearts today. God, may he be more central in us in a ch- in, as a church, we pray. So, God, thank you, Lord this remembrance in your name. Amen. Amen. As you go out this week, there are people who are pursuing idols in their own way, in their own thing, and they may be very successful, but life may be empty. So Harbor, would you remember the good news of Jesus? Would you remember the cross of Christ that we have just remembered today? Harbor, we are sent.